Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. Well, today we come to the end of Romans chapter 8, and it's one of the most majestic portions of Scripture in all of of God's word. When we come to Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 39, we come to really the crescendo of this amazing, amazing chapter. Romans 8, 31 through 39 is Paul wrapping up this amazing chapter and and ending with the the topic of grace and just an understanding of, of God's grace. And Paul takes his time with this, and so we've been taking our time with this as well. If you're, if you're fairly new to Central, we've been in the book of Romans for, you ready for this, 32 weeks. And, uh, and we've been spending eight weeks in Romans chapter 8 alone uh, because it's worth just a, a kind of taking a slow walk uh, through what Paul is unpacking here in Romans 8. And if you haven't uh, been with us this whole time in Romans 8, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. Um, you can check it out on YouTube as well, but podcast is great because you can listen to it while you're on the treadmill, out for a walk, uh, in a commute. And my hope is that all of us would understand God's grace a little better. Because uh, it's one thing to understand grace cognitively, like in our head. Uh, Billy Graham said the furthest distance in the human existence is, is about eight inches. And that's from your head into your heart. And when we understand grace, not just on a cognitive level, but it becomes part of the fabric of who we are, it changes everything in our life. It changes the way you approach God in prayer. It changes the way you approach people. Uh, And just every sphere of life, it changes everything. So God's grace is the ultimate. And when we come to Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39, Paul is celebrating that work of grace. Uh, Paul is, is not only celebrating the work of grace, but he's creating a case for grace. And like a good attorney making his closing statements, Paul closes the book of or chapter 8 of Romans uh, with, with seven questions. We're going to condense them down to six questions that have a rhetorical answer of yes. And all of which point to the fact that Romans 8, 30, 8 1, rather, is that there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in. Christ Jesus. So the first question that Paul asked was this. We talked about last week, just to bring us up to speed. Uh, The first question was, what then shall we say to these things? Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? And what are these things? Well, Paul's, uh, it's kind of a recital of all that Paul has taught us from Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8 now. And he calls to remembrance all that God has done for us, to remember that once we were separated from God because of our, our own actions, because the intentionality of our heart, that all of us are worthy of God's wrath. At one time, we were all subject to God's wrath, but God in his mercy provided this way. He says, says, says there's no one righteous, not even one. So it begins like, God, is there any hope for us? Then Jesus steps onto the stage and and Paul shares the gospel. He provides this pathway for us to experience the life-changing power of God, to now be right with God, once unrighteous, now made right with God. Not just our own righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness not our own. It's great news. All of which points to this fact that Romans 8.1 is true, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of all Jesus has done for us. Second question Paul asks is, if God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? It says this, Romans 8.31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be 
against us. Think of it this way. If the God of the universe, the ultimate authority in all creation, that there, there is no one before him, there will be no one after him. He is the beginning. He is the end. He, he's the ultimate authority. And if, and if he says he's for you, then what could be against you? Listen, there's no angel in heaven, there's no devil in hell that could overthrow his power, overthrow his, his authority. And if he's for you, who could be against you? And if God's for you, then Romans 8.31 must be true, that there is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The third question that Paul asks is if God gave us Jesus, won't he give us everything else we need? Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God the Father did everything necessary, provided Jesus the Son to, to provide everything necessary for your salvation, he didn't leave one, one element out but was willing to go to that great extent, if he was willing to go that far to provide not only your, your, your creation but to provide your salvation, then won't he provide for you everything else you need to accomplish his plan and purpose for your life? Philippians 1.6 says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He who started a good work in you, he's going to finish it for you, all of which underscores the reality that Romans 8.1 is true, that therefore there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. And all of that brings us to our scripture today. We'll be in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 33 through 39, the end of this amazing, amazing chapter. And so with, as we approach this, this text, as we read our verse of the day, would you stand to your feet with me and uh, in honor of God's word? And we get to the red letter words. If you could, really loud, really proud, uh, read those words out loud with me. Here's one of the most beautiful portions of scripture in all of the Bible, and it says this. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. Yeah, so who should separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, should trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that your promise is true. We thank you today, God, for the realities that nothing can separate us from your love. And God, sometimes we just need a reminder of that because some of us here in the room are facing tough situations, tough circumstances, facing real pain in life. In the midst of pain, we can often ask, God, where are you? God, don't you love me? But God, we're thankful today for the reminder that nothing could ever separate us from our love, from your love for us. So God, in turn, we just say thanks for that. And God, help us to better grasp the weight and the ramifications of the words here in Romans 8. And God, we're going to give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before you have a seat, why don't you give someone a high five or a firm handshake and say you're more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. 
Those of you online can do that as well. We're glad you're with us. Here's the fourth question. If you're taking notes, here's where they continue, actually. The fourth question that Paul asked is, who will bring any charge against God's chosen? Who will bring any charge against God's chosen? Romans 8.33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has, has chosen? We could read this as, who will bring any charge against those who are Christians? Who will bring any charge against those who have been saved? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has adopted? As a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus here in the room or, or watching online or tuning in later, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, we should always view ourselves in this way. We should view ourselves as, as chosen by God because you are. Now, in school, you might not have been chosen for kickball team. On the basketball team, you might not have, might not have been chosen. We might not have been chosen for that promotion. We might not have been chosen to be a part of that group. But whenever it comes to God, the creator of the universe, he chose you. He chose you. You are chosen by God. You are favored by God. And oftentimes, when it comes to this topic of God choosing, it's often debates begin to spark in often a negative sense. Well, what about those who, who are not chosen? And I would just push back on that and say, I think everyone has the opportunity to carry this title. Some just choose not to. God, God desires for everyone to be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He loved the world and everyone in it. Second uh, Peter 3.9 says this, For the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. So some people say, well, well, God, like if you're coming back for your kids, what's taking so long? Like, we're ready. Like, do you see what's going on in 2023? Lord, come, the Lord Jesus, come. But he's, God's not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. No, he's patient. Why is he so patient? Because he does not want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to know him, wants everyone to come to this place of repentance, so how do you know if you're chosen? Well, you're chosen because whenever you heard the gospel, you didn't just give intellectual consent to it. You realized that the good news requires a good response. And you said, man, God, if you gave everything for me, God, here's my life. I give you everything. I, and in doing so, I, I, I repent. I turn from my sin. And, and God, I, I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow you. And God, I'm just so grateful that you would choose me, that you would call me, that God, you would give me an opportunity to to know you, he chose you, all of which highlights not only if God is for you, who could be against you, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he chose you. God, it's God who, who justifies, it's God who, who plans this, it's God who not only planned your creation but has a plan for your salvation. The fifth question is who is he that condemns then? Who is he that, that condemns? Certainly there are spiritual forces of evil in this world that want to condemn you, that want to accuse you. Uh, we read about this in, in Revelation 12. We talked about this in our study of spiritual warfare. But here's what it says. It says, The great dragon was hurled down, this ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now ha have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Watch this. For the accuser, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled to the ground. I mean, I have an accuser and you have an accuser. And he's accusing you day after day and night after night. 
not only before God, but I think accusing you personally. I think very real spiritual forces of evil want to condemn you, want to confuse you, want you to feel paralyzed, make you, make you want to feel like I have to start all over again. So every time you come to God, it's like I have to do this spiritual autopsy on my soul to say, well, God, I blew it here. Yeah, I blew it here. I blew it here. I blew it here. And they want to keep you suppressed, beat down, not coming to God in faith with confidence and power and authority that God has given you as this child of God, but rather, rather to, to be very tread, uh, fearful, come timid, uh, not boldly before the throne of grace because of what you've done. Uh, for many of you here in the room, or some of you anyway, you come into this place and, and, and evil forces are saying, man, who do you think you are? Like, you come into this room, you're going to worship, you're going to lift your hand. Like, if you do that, you're the biggest hypocrite I know. You, how dare, you know what your hands have done this week. You know the thoughts you thought this week. You know what you did. Accusing you over and over and over and over and over again. He's the accuser of the brothers. And Paul just asks, well, is he the one who's going to condemn you? Another good question is, what about whenever your own heart condemns you? I mean, your heart knows things you've done that no one else knows that you've done. Your, your heart knows your motives behind your actions. Your heart knows things about you that, that the person sitting next to you would be shocked and flabbergasted to know that would be true about you. So what about whenever your own heart condemns you? And... I was going to take time to unpack this a little bit, but you can read about it in 1 John 3, 19 through 20. You can read about uh, when our own hearts condemn us. But ultimately, whenever our hearts condemn us, it's vital for us to remember the gospel, to remember what Jesus has done. Yes, I have done this, but I also know what God has done for me. Yes, I know what I've done, but I'm very much aware of what God has done for me. I'm not excusing my sin I'm not winking at sin. I'm just resting in the fact that God has forgiven me of my sin. I'm coming to him realizing that it's a settled thing. Like I'm, I'm a sinner that's been saved by grace. I am an imperfect person, but I am in progress. I understand that God has forgiven me. I understand that God has rescued me from sin's curse. I understand that God ha has set his affections on me. I've been adopted as his own and he calls me his son. He calls me his daughter. I understand that what God has done for me that I could never do for myself. I understand that God has chosen me. God is working in me to make me more like Jesus. And God is committed to the completion of that process. I understand that. And I let my understanding of that reality trump whatever other reality might be at battle in my mind. Now, I know what I've done. But instead of taking 1,000 looks at myself and doing a spiritual autopsy, rather than taking 1,000 looks at myself and saying, man, you really blew it here, Tim. You really blew it here, Tim. Instead, I'm going to take my eyes off of myself. I'm going to put them onto the perfect one. And as I focus on him, I'm going to discover that it's him working in me to will and to act according to his good purpose and pleasure in my life. I take one look at myself, but I'm going to take 10,000 looks at him. And now all of a sudden, faith begins to rise in my heart. Confidence begins to rise in my heart when I realize who is for me. And when I realize who's for me, then I come to this place and I say, well, if that's the case, well, then who, who could ever be against me? All of which reminds us, there is therefore now no condemnation. But to Paul's question in verse 34, who is he that condemns? Here's what Paul says. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who is he that condemns? How, how, how do we know that there is therefore now no condemnation? Well, Paul lists four things for us here that remind us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first thing that he says is Christ Jesus died. 
Christ Jesus died. Who is he that condemns? I mean, hey, Christ Jesus has died for you. Look at it. Uh, verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. I mean, this isn't just any sacrifice that frees you from condemnation. This is the perfect sacrifice. It's, it's Jesus. It's God, very God, who left all the glory of heaven, was born of a virgin named Mary, who lived a flawless life, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, was died. He died and he was buried for you, for your ransom. I mean, Christ Jesus died for you. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, For you know that God paid a ransom, there it is, to save you from the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors. And it was not with mere gold, silver, or, or, or other things that, that lose their value. I mean, you weren't ransomed with a billion dollars in stocks. You weren't ransomed with like five billion in crypto. You weren't ransomed with like the all of Yellowstone property. Like, like there wasn't a land acquisition that ransomed you. Like, like all of that, great as it may be and as valuable as it may be, does not even come close to comparing with the priceless sacrifice of Jesus. We can't quantify it. We can't we can't monetize it. We can't we can't articulate just how great the sacrifice was. Look at verse 19. It was with the precious blood of Christ the sinless, spotless lamb of God that ransomed you. Paul says Christ Jesus has died for you. Like, who's going to condemn you? Second thing he says is Christ Jesus was raised. He didn't just die, but he was raised to life. Look at it, verse 34. Who is it he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that was raised to life. He didn't just die, but he defeated death, hell, and the grave. He was raised to life again. Romans 4.25 says this. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, what does that mean? How, how, do, we, how are we to interpret that? Basically, it's saying that, that, that Jesus was handed over to death to pay the penalty for our sins, but he was raised to life, indicating that God the Father accepts the sacrifice. And therefore raised him by the power of the Spirit, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, confirming the sacrifice was sufficient. You have been justified. Who can condemn you? I mean, the perfect Son of God, the Lamb without blemish, took your death and that you deserve, that I deserve, confirming our justification, sin erased, debt paid for, now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if that is true, and it is, who could ever condemn you? Third thing he says is Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God. Romans 8, 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that was raised to life. He's now at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10. Chris mentioned this earlier. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14 says this. And by that will, so God's will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What? Like, hold on. Like, let's just pause for a moment. And by that will, we have been made holy. So have been, past tense. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you're, you're justified. We talked about this throughout our study of Romans. Here's what takes place at justification. Your, your sins erase, past, present, future. Wonderful. And most of the time we think of salvation, we think of our sins being forgiven, which is true. And I'm not undermining that in any way. But that's not all. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He, he, he imputes, he credits, he assigns to us the righteousness of Christ. So now, whenever we come to God, I don't come in the righteousness of Tim because I wouldn't get very far. But I come boldly knowing that I've been clothed in the righteousness 
of Christ. And therefore, I have been made holy. Not because I feel holy, because my feelings will lead me astray and so will yours. But because he's declared me holy, holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. Like one time at the cross, like it was sufficient. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Why does he stand? Because his work is never done. The sacrifices of priests in the Old Testament were never sufficient. They, they, they never removed sin. So the priest stands there day after day, again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Watch this. But when the priest offered, this is Jesus, once for all, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to become his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wow. Hey, check it out. You've been made perfect forever, the Bible says. How? By one sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. So now before God, you're made perfect forever. But watch this. But we're still being made holy. So are we holy? Yes. Are we being made holy? Yes. It's this process, this theological term called sanctification. Justification takes place the moment we commit our lives to Jesus. Past, present, future sins forgiven, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Awesome. But now, this, this, right now, in this moment, we're experiencing an aspect of our salvation where we align our life to the life of Jesus, where we, we are being made holy. We're trying to live life as Jesus lived. And, and I would just submit to you this. If you're a follower of Jesus and your chief aim in life right now is not to live life as Jesus lived, then you're missing out on a crucial element of salvation. If you feel like, man, I'm missing out on the abundant life, God. God, you said if I come to you, like you've come to give us life, life to the fullest, John 10.10. 10. And if that's not your experience, then I would just encourage you, purpose in your heart to live life like Jesus did. Have you been made holy? Yes. But we're still in process of being made holy. And that's where the joy comes. That's where the excitement comes. That's where the adventure comes. It, we're, we're not who we want to be, but we're not who we used to be. And, and one day we're going to be glorified. That's the third aspect of salvation. We're going to experience glorification. We're going to get rid of these bodies, these broken bodies. So no more braces needed on teeth or arms for that matter. Like, like no more glasses. You're, you're going to get a glorified body to worship a glorified Savior for a glorified eternity. And it's amazing. All that's possible because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so God, Jesus, is at the right hand of God. He sits down because the sacrifice is sufficient. And because that's the reality, who's going to condemn you? Well, therefore, there is no condemnation because of what Jesus has done. Fourth point that Paul makes is that Christ Jesus is interceding for us. Who is, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that was raised to life is at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. We've seen that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in the midst of suffering. We talked about that in Romans 8. Uh, in the midst of suffering, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express, the Bible says. And he, and he intercedes for us perfectly in alignment with the will of the Father. But here we see Jesus Christ interceding for us as well. 
Look at it again in, in Hebrews 7, 24 through 25 says this, but because Jesus lives forever, he has, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. He's, he's, did you notice that? He's able to save completely, not just partially. Uh, sometimes we tend to think like, well, at salvation, God forgave me like 95% of the way. Now I got to figure out 5% of my crap. Like I got to figure out the rest of this stuff, right? Or like 99%. Maybe I got to figure out 1%. Like he, t- he did the most of it, but now I got to do like, like my part. But the Bible says he's able to save completely not just partially those who come to him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Isn't it encouraging to know that right now the Holy Spirit is interceding for you in perfect alignment with the will of the Father? Not only is the Holy Spirit interceding for you, but isn't it nice to know that Jesus himself is at the right hand of God and is interceding on your behalf? And you're like, what's he saying? And, you know, I've probably been guilty of this. We've heard preachers like wax eloquently about like how, how Jesus is there like, well, God, remember the sacrifice I made for them? I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think God the Father is very well aware of the sacrifice he's made for you and he's made for me. I think Jesus is interceding saying, God, Father, I know what it's like to be on earth. I know what they're going through. I think Jesus is like, I, I know what it's like to try to serve you when you're exhausted. I know what it's like to have people betray you. I know what it's like to be in that situation. And God, here's a way I think we can help. And I think God the Father's like, yeah, let's do that. Let's help him. Let, let, I think let's, let's, let's help him where help is needed. He longs to be gracious to you. He longs to help you. And isn't it nice to know that Jesus himself is interceding for you? And because that's true, who's going to condemn you? I mean, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sixth and final question that Paul asks is then, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate you from the love of Christ? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? It's a good question. Because sometimes when we're in trouble, we're like, God, where are you? Don't you love me? Or hardship? I mean, have you ever faced hardship and thought, God, did you forget about me? Or persecution? I mean, statistically speaking, 14 people will give their lives as a martyr today in persecution. In the midst of that kind of persecution for your faith, it, it'd be easy to allow the thought creep into our mind, well, God, aren't you for me? Or famine or nakedness. Nakedness is like, you've lost everything. You've lost the car. You've lost the house. You've lost the bank account. You, you don't even have any clothes on your back at this point. And if you are in that predicament, which thankfully none of you are by the <laughs> looks of the room, If you were, would that mean that God doesn't love you anymore? That he's given up on you? Or danger? Or sword? Which, all of which, like, in this context, we're like, well, of course God loves us. Like, this is like, I'm like, come on, like, Paul, like, really? But think about your situation. This is a great question because we all go here in our mind. Especially in in times of pressure, in times of hardship. Whenever life seems just difficult, when it feels like we're getting smacked at every turn, we say, well, God, I love you. Why is this happening? And Paul's saying, will any of these things separate us from the love of God? So before you experience it, or if you're experiencing it now, this is just a good question to ask and to have in the back of your mind because whenever pressure comes, we tend to question the love of God in the midst of, of suffering. 
All of which makes Paul's closing question all the more vital for us today. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Our trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, sword. Look at what Paul says in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul knows that suffering is part of the Christian life. Paul knows that martyrdom has always been a part of church history. It's not a surprise to Paul when suffering comes. It's actually expected. And can I just, like, is it expected in your life? Or do you expect suffering to come? Because Jesus said, in this world you're going to have trouble, but you can take heart, I've overcome the world. Sometimes I think as followers of Jesus, we think, God, I'm, 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 I'm right with you. I'm trying to live right. So why isn't my life right? But that was never promised. What's promised is that he's with us in the midst of suffering. He's with us in the midst of danger. He's with us in the midst of persecution. His love never fades or fails, no matter what life throws at us. Look what he says in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Loved, loved us loved us, past tense. Before the creation of the world, he loved you. He had you in mind. He chose you for 2023. He loved you and chose you to live in the Bay Area. He chose you. He had you in mind. He loved you in eternity past. He'll love you in eternity in the future. He says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us, more than conquerors. In the power of Christ, we will meet every trial head on, and we will not merely conquer those battles, we will be more than conquerors. Being more than a conqueror doesn't mean that you will not face battles. It means that in the midst of the battles, you will emerge victorious through the love and power of Christ. No matter the challenges you face, remember that you are not just a conqueror, but you are more than a conqueror through the power of Christ. The world will throw its worst at you, but with Christ, you're not just a survivor. You are an overcomer beyond your imagination. The love of Christ empowers us to overcome the greatest obstacles, making us more than conquerors in our journey of faith. True victory is not just defeating our enemies, but rising above the circumstances with love and grace in Christ, making you more than a conqueror. No matter the insurmountable obstacles you see in front of you in Christ, you have the strength to rise above and conquer. You are more than a conqueror. It was Adrian Rogers who said this, we are not just conquerors, we are more than conquerors. We can be more, we, what can be more than a conqueror? It, it means that there is nothing that can defeat us. Billy Graham said this in Romans 8:37. we find this astonishing promise that we are more than conquerors through Christ. This verse reminds us that our faith is not just about surviving, but thriving in the face of adversity. Dr. Charles Stanley says the words more than conquerors remind us that in Christ we're not just, we don't just overcome trials. We emerge from them stronger, wiser, more victorious than we could ever imagine. John Piper says Romans 8:37 tells us that in the fiercest battles of life, we are not just mere survivors. We are overcomers and our victory is secure through God's love. Joyce Myers says that through Christ, we are not just conquerors over external forces. We are more than conquerors over our own doubts, fears, and insecurities. Rick Warren says, we often face situations that seem overwhelming, but Romans 8.37 reminds us that we are not just victors. We are more than conquerors through Christ's strength and love. 
Today, just a friendly reminder from heaven, you are more than a conqueror. The situations may feel overwhelming. Circumstances may seem insurmountable. You may be in a place where you're like, God, do you love me? Listen, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Not life, not death, neither angels nor demons, neither what you're facing today, nor the future which you'll face tomorrow, nor any powers. Romans 8, 38 through 39, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation. It's like Paul's like, I'm at a loss for, I can't think of another situation that you might think maybe God's given up on me. He's like, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. All of which underscores the fact that therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In every season, every situation, remember, you're more than a conqueror through him who loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today.